Well, I invite you to uh, turn with me to, uh, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And I want to read the uh, first 12 verses. And before I read, let's bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we ask your help in maintaining our focus and so that our meditations uh, and the words of my mouth will be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And Matthew tells us, when, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one man's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So today we're looking at, uh, you may wonder why we're looking at Matthew 19. And uh, it seems maybe a strange place to go today, but we, we actually had a series we were working through about a year and a half ago, and we got to Matthew 18. And I didn't say we would get back to Matthew, and uh, so here we are. <laughs> so we start at Matthew 19, we'll pick up and uh, continue our series, and uh, after a long break, uh, I think the last time we were doing this, we were in the open air. Um, during COVID, and uh, some of you heard uh, some of those sermons, but uh, we're going to resume today, uh, for, for a time at least, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but you may remember the story so far in the book of uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, one in Chapters 1 and 2, they introduce the birth of Jesus and the circumstances around the birth of Jesus. And then in chapters 3 and 4, you have uh, John the Baptist appears on the scene. And he is uh, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So he comes uh, uh, paving the way, as it were, for Jesus Christ uh, to, uh, to come onto the scene. And uh, at the end, in, in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized uh, by John the Baptist in the Jordan and the heavens open up and a dove comes down from heaven and a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, I delight in him and to follow him. And, 
And so Jesus' public ministry starts in chapter 3. And the first thing that happens is he's taken off into the desert by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes him off into the desert. And he faces temptation. But he's preparing himself for uh, the days of ministry ahead. And then in chapters 5 through to 18, we have Jesus ministering in the region of Galilee. The north. Up, up, up north. He's uh, ministering there. And uh, he does some amazing things, doesn't he? Uh, he does healings. He casts out demons. He teaches amazing sermons. He speaks in parables that some people get and some people don't get. But he does, has this amazing ministry where people hear him preach and see him work and they cannot but follow him. And so you see this picture of Jesus going around Galilee and being followed by crowds of people who want to see more and hear more of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to chapter 19, 19 marks a transition Because here, from here on, Jesus is heading towards Judea and ultimately to Jerusalem. And he's going to die in Jerusalem. And he's surrounded by people again. Large crowds follow him. And he goes to Judea and he goes to the region beyond the Jordan, which probably means to the east of the Jordan, which in some people's minds was still called Judea, still known as Judea. And he has this crowd following him. You may remember what was said about Jesus when he started his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. I can find it. 4.25. He says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, And from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Uh, Even when he was in Galilee, people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem and beyond the Jordan and coming to Jesus in those early days of his ministry. And so now here he is across the Jordan and and beyond the Jordan. And he has these people following him. And there are some Pharisees there too. Uh, Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. By asking a question. Who are the Pharisees? Well the Pharisees are a, a, a high, highly, highly religious political group. They're not actually religious people as such. They're not priests or anything. They're a highly religious political group in Judea. And they have strong representation in the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And they come... Being religious men, you know, they come to Jesus with a question. But as you'll see, that it's not a question that seeks an honest answer in a sense. But it's a question that has as its intention to test Jesus. And it's a question about divorce. And they want to have a discussion about divorce. And there ensues a discussion, therefore, between Jesus and the Pharisees in verses 3 to 9. 
which consider some of the Old Testament uh, Bible texts. And then there's a discussion between Jesus and his disciples in private in 10 to 12. And so as we look at this today, it's actually a really important question, isn't it? This question of marriage and divorce, it's a really important question for us. Um, We need to have a good, strong, biblical conviction about the nature of marriage and the place of divorce in our day. And I think it's increasingly difficult uh, to hold biblical convictions uh, in, a, in the current climate. Because the simple truth is that our culture thinks very little of the institution of marriage. Um, if, if couples get married, well, good for them. Let's have a big party and a celebration. Um, and if people get divorced... Well, let's have a party again. Let's celebrate the separation. That's, some people do that. Um, and, and marriage kind of comes and goes. It's uh, incidental almost. So when we come to a passage like this, uh, which deals with the issue of uh, divorce from marriage, we, we might think it's, it's not very relevant to us today. If we're brought up in that climate of the world around us, we might not think it's relevant But it is, if we're Christians. We need to take seriously the fact that Jesus has spoken about it. And because he has spoken about it, we need to listen as Christians to what Jesus says about it. So, three things this morning uh, about this. And the first is to note something important about the human heart. Uh, Note the danger of hard hearts when dealing with Bible texts. That's, That's a very general comment. The danger of hard hearts when dealing with Bible texts. Let me just dig a little bit more into the background to this. The the issue of divorce was a matter of of great debate amongst the Pharisees. Um, The Old Testament passage they've got in their mind is from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy uh, 24, 1-4. And the important part of that passage, and you can look it up later, is that divorce was permitted says Deuteronomy 24, if a man finds, quote, some indecency in his wife. <laughs> now the question is, what, what is that something indecent that a wife would have to do to uh, bring about a divorce? And there were two schools of thought in Jesus' time amongst the rabbis at the time. One was uh, uh, argued by Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, who argued that Divorce could be for anything at all. So, you know, if a man finds anything at all indecent about his wife, even if you, your wife annoyed you or, or pestered you or something, you know, you just got fed up, you could say, well, that's something indecent, and so I can divorce her. And that's, that school of thought was around at the time of Jesus. The other school of thought was from Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, who argued that it had to be some form of sexual immorality. And then you could divorce your wife. But in both cases, the Pharisees believed that only the men had the right to divorce. And just another bit of historical background to Jesus' more immediate time is, of course, that uh, in Matthew 14, Herod Antipas, the king, the local king, uh, is married to Herodias, 
Now Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. But they had divorced. And the circumstances of Philip's divorce from Herodias were pretty unsavory. She had simply deserted Philip for Herod. And the original marriage was dissolved. And it was, it was that issue that John the Baptist got into trouble over by pointing it out and saying how evil that was that it ended up with John the Baptist's head being chopped off and put on a plate and delivered to Herodias, who was very happy about it. So that's the, that's the background to this. And so for Pharisees to come to Jesus and ask about divorce is actually quite a dangerous question for Jesus in light of what's happened to John the Baptist. And so they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus' answer might give the Pharisees ammunition that would put him in the same category as John the Baptist, and they could get rid of him. We'll come to the details of the answer in a a moment, but Jesus responds with a clarifying question. Have you not read? In verse 4. Have you not read? And he quotes then from Moses. From Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The Pharisees then counter that with a quote from Deuteronomy 24. In verse 7, they said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and and to send her away? See, a man could write a certificate of divorce and uh, dispose of his wife. Um, And it's here that Jesus gives the underlying reason for that law, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24. He said it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now you notice what Jesus did here. He didn't say it wasn't because of, he didn't say because of their hardness of heart back in Moses' time. He says because of your hardness of heart that this law is here. He's pointing to the Pharisees and their hardness of heart over this issue of marriage. They're playing with God's word, but their hearts are hard against it. And that's an issue that is true of all generations. The fundamental problem with the human condition is that it's not what we do or don't do so much as to do with the state of our hearts before God. And remember that Jesus said in chapter 15 that it's not what is outside of us that makes us unclean, but what is inside of us that makes us unclean. And that's our sin, of course. And as we know from the Apostle Paul, if you've been following our evening services through Romans, The law cannot solve that heart problem. 
It needs the Holy Spirit to come and renew the heart and make a person a new, uh, a new person in Christ. No law can fix the hardness of the human heart. And so Deuteronomy 24 is, is interesting in that regard because the law, as it's written, doesn't actually command divorce in, in certain circumstances. It doesn't even desire divorce. All it does is it regulates divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. But it doesn't justify divorce. Or, even, or it just doesn't justify divorce. And it's, I think, an indication of the, the grace of God that not only does the law define what is good and bad, but it also seeks to deal with the consequences of the actions of human beings and sinful human hearts. It's, it's actually a gracious provision in the law of God. And that is something that the Pharisees have failed to see, the gracious provision of God in the heart. Now this, this idea of hardness of heart, that's a warning for us, isn't it? As Christian people. Uh, especially as we come to discuss text of Scripture. Because given the historical background, the Pharisees were reading into Scripture what they wanted from their, human heart, their hard hearts. We always have to be aware that when we read the Bible and we seek to understand what it's saying and do what it says, that we too might have hard hearts and we're not willing to pay attention to what he says. See, what happens then is you, you end up skipping to the bits of the Bible you like and skipping over the bits of the Bible you don't like. I think, oh, that's too hard. It's not, it's not the text that's often hard, it's just your heart's hard <laughs> and you won't receive it. And so, you know, the question for us is, how do we read the Bible? How do we receive the Bible as it's preached to us? Has God softened your heart as you come to the word of God Sunday by Sunday, day by day? Is your heart softened? Well, Jesus carries on and uh, goes deeper uh, with this question. And he takes us back to to first principles. And the question is, what is marriage? What is marriage? So this is our second point. What is marriage? And uh, in verses 4 to 6, Jesus goes, uh, goes back to basics by quoting from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis uh, 2.24. And then he concludes with his commentary. So, um, so Genesis 1.27, if you look at verse 4, He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he quotes uh, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in verse 6 is is Jesus' commentary on that, where he says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate So let me draw your attention to five things about marriage from these verses. (laughs) How can I get five things out of two verses? Five things, let's go. Number one, marriage is built into the creation order. 
Uh, Genesis 1.27, partially quoted in verse 4, it is spelled out that man as male and female is in the image of God. And Jesus brings this into the marriage discussion. It's really important that we we go back to basics in this. Interestingly, yesterday at Presbytery, we had a man being interviewed, uh, examined on the floor of Presbytery, being asked questions by the Presbytery, uh, with a view to bringing him into the Presbytery as a minister. And uh, he was asked this question if, about marriage and uh, dealing with students who have often very mixed up their ideas about marriage. And he says, how would you deal with a student who said this sort of thing? And his answer was, you go back to basics. It was an excellent answer. You go back to the creation order. How did God make things and prepare things? So... Jesus therefore brings marriage into this discussion on marriage, the way in which human beings are created, and that marriage is instituted by God. Now, I don't need to tell you how topical this is for Christians today when governments across the world are introducing same sex marriage and are putting pressure on people to redefine what male and female is in our, our society. There's lots of pressure around to to mix up our view of what marriage is. But we need to be crystal clear that all of those things are contrary to God's word and contrary to Jesus' teaching. And here's another thing. If, if, If marriage were just an idea for Christians, we would have no business speaking to the government about it. Because it's just a matter for the church. But here... Marriage is built into all of creation. In other words, for all human beings. Whether you're Christian or not. It doesn't matter what your religion is. God has made marriage this way for all men and women. And so we must be courageous in speaking to the issue. That's why churches do speak to government about these issues. Uh, and we need to be more courageous as hostility will grow. And it has been growing. We, we see people losing their jobs in the public sector over expressing an opinion about it. But we need to continue to be create, courageous about it. So, marriage is built into the created order. Secondly, marriage is a covenant. In verse 5, uh, you see man leaving the parental home and holding fast to his wife. Holding fast. That's covenant language. That's a statement about loyalty and commitment of the man to his new wife and vice versa. And it has all the essential components of covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And it's no surprise, therefore, that Malachi 2.14 refers to marriage as a covenant. That's why marriage, marriages are always public affairs. You don't just privately decide to get married in a room together. Uh, You make public promises and you make commitments to one another. So marriage is a covenant. Thirdly, marriage is a union. Verse 5, the couple of man and woman become one flesh, expressing itself where possible in sexual union and intimacy. And this is where we get the idea that a marriage should be consummated. So marriage is a covenant and a union uh, through sexual union. Fourthly, 
marriage, your marriage takes priority over all other relationships. Verse 5 makes clear that the old order of parent-child relationship as primary now becomes secondary. The man leaves his wife and joins with his wife, uh, leaves his home and joins with his wife. Uh, it's, it's often difficult for parents to truly let go of your children, isn't it? When they get married, and perhaps especially for mothers with their sons or fathers with their daughters, it's hard to let them go. But as parents, you must let them go if your daughter or son is getting married. Because that relationship for them becomes primary. Everything else for them becomes secondary in human relationships. Think about it. When you get married, that's the only person in the world to whom you say, I commit myself unto death to you. You don't do that with your parents, do you? Only to your wife or your husband. So it's, it takes priority over other relationships. Fifthly, lastly, it is an act of God. In verse 6, Jesus states that it is God who joins a man and a woman together in marriage. He's not simply referring to that first marriage in Eden, but of course to any marriage. And there is not, therefore, religious marriage, there is not civil marriage, just marriage. All marriages are put together by God. Marriage is defined for human society, not just for Christians or religious people. And it doesn't matter whether the parties are believers or not, God has made the marriage. So even those marriages that take place down at the registry office between people who are not believers, not Christians, God puts them together. So, that's fifthly. It's an act of God. So, such is Jesus' teaching on marriage. When Jesus concludes, and then Jesus concludes with this, uh, that stunning statement in verse 6, that any marriage that is made under heaven, no one has a right to bring about separation. God doesn't want marriages to separate. However, brings us to our final point. What can we say about divorce? It's clear that it's not God's intention for marriage, for divorce, and therefore uh, for divorce to happen. Therefore, it's it's not a desirable uh, outcome. And it must be avoided as, as far as possible. So great care needs to be taken in guarding and protecting your marriage. That's why we need to remember who instituted and what it is and its priority over other relationships. And that takes work. Work by both the husband and the wife to work hard at your marriage. You never take your your wife or husband for granted. That you put into practice the promises that you've made to remain faithful to your spouse. And you reject any meddling into your marriage by any outside third party 
who would seek to drive a wedge between you and your wife or your husband. That's not to say that divorce doesn't happen. And in verse 9, uh, Jesus does deal with uh, real, real cases that may happen. Um, and I think his teaching is, is very clear. To willfully initiate a, a divorce and then to remarry is to commit adultery and to enter into sin. The only exception to that is one that Jesus gives here, is that if there is a case of sexual immorality. So Jesus, um, I don't think Jesus gives, deals with all the issues here, but he's dealing with this particular issue. If there is sexual immorality, then one may divorce. Um, what does he mean by sexual immorality? Well, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. It could be another man or another woman. It could be a same-sex relationship. It could be incest. It could be pornography. All of these things are acts of infidelity to your spouse. But even in giving that exception, Jesus is not commanding divorce in that situation. He is simply allowing it. He is saying it's permissible But the couple may reconcile themselves to each other after such an event. So it's pretty blunt, isn't it? Jesus is pretty blunt in his teaching. And it gives much pause for thought. And and evidently the disciples thought so. Uh, The disciples actually thought, well, if if that's the case, who would marry at all? Why get married at all? It's just so difficult. Obviously divorce was just a thing that that happened in first century Judea. But that's the point. We need to take marriage really seriously. It's a serious matter to get married. It's a lifelong commitment to another person, which only death can bring to an end. Now, some of us might inevitably be thinking, aren't there some cases where divorce is permissible other than sexual immorality? And Jesus highlights this issue here. But I think there is another place where Paul, Apostle Paul does highlight another issue which necessitates divorce. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul's speaking about believers with an unbelieving wife or husband. And in that discussion he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. So if you're a Christian married to a non-Christian and your non-Christian partner says, I can't stay in this marriage any longer, then you may allow that person to separate legitimately. Okay, that raises another question. What if you have two believers and one partner decides they cannot stay in this marriage. That's a more complicated problem, but not an insurmountable problem. How do we handle that sort of thing? There are a couple of steps that need to be taken. The first step is to recognize that simply to desert the marriage is a great and public sin. So if you walk away from your marriage, you're committing a great and public sin. And the sinner, who's a believer 
It needs to be called back to repentance and be reconciled. As part of church discipline, and the church should take that up if it, if it, if it ever happens. Thankfully, it's never happened in our church. But when the sinner, if the sinner then does not repent, the sinner has walked away from a marriage and doesn't repent, what's the next step? Well, the next step is for the church to excommunicate and to say that that person is an unrepentant sinner and unrepentant sinners can't be Christians. So we're saying the person has to be excommunicated, that we treat them as non-believers. So now you have a marriage with a believer and somebody who's recognized as a non-believer, an unrepentant sinner. And then, as Paul says, if he separates or she separates, let it be so. So desertion from a marriage can lead ultimately to a legitimate divorce. Does that make sense? Hope oh, that makes sense. You may have to think that through yourselves. But that's... The, those are the occasions when a marriage is permissible, a, a divorce is permissible from marriage. And it's essentially what you're doing in separating from an unrepentant sinner is you're treating that person as dead. They've not come alive in Christ. And so death ends a marriage, and that's why it's permissible. Friends, marriage is a, it's a solemn undertaking. And Jesus gives us, us his teaching here. And we need to recognize that the sins of our hearts uh, can mean that by God's grace, they, they need to be worked at. Marriages need to be worked at to be able to preserve God's appointed marriages so that we may flourish in them. And that means amongst the many things we do as married couples is we plead with God for soft hearts with one another. That's often a thing that fails in marriages that are difficult. And Susan and I have been through, done some marriage counseling over the years. And often when couples come to us at the start, their hearts are hard against each other. And the work we have to do is to get them to look at their own hearts and to pray to God for softened hearts so that marriages can be preserved. You need to be open to God's word, open to his spirit, working that word into your heart. And so, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are married and those who aspire to be married, let's pray for our marriages and pray that God would bless us in them. May God give us grace for this work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, Jesus' teaching here, and we do want to pray for our marriages in this church. And for those who aspire to marriage, Lord, teach us what godly marriage looks like and how seriously we are to take it. And Lord, give us grace to continue to serve you in our marriages as we seek to love our spouses and our children. Sustain us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.